Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. We are really excited to bring you today's guest. Raf Ruiz is not only a friend of myself, Alex, and everyone at the project, but one of the most incredible, thoughtful strength and conditioning coaches that we've ever met or heard of. The guy has worked with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tampa Bay Mutiny, and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. In other words, peak performers in major athletics. He not only works with teams, but with individuals. He has trained guys like the NFL's Deion Sanders, Major League Baseball's Gary Sheffield, Boxing's Antonio Tarver, and many Olympic swimmers. He was the director of performance at the University of Tampa for a decade, and when he was there, his athletes won five national championships in soccer, volleyball, and back-to-back baseball championships. You can find more about Raf at rafruiz.com, learn about the Hero Initiative, learn how to hero up, uh, and all the other really cool things that he's doing. I also highly recommend following him on social media. The videos and images he posts of training, especially uh, adolescent and youth athletes, they are thoughtful, intentional, and it's strength and conditioning and movement prep in the way it ought to be done. So tune in to hear from master of movement and elite human being, Raf Ruiz. To find out more about the Good Athlete Project, find us on social media at Coach the Number Four Kindness. That's Coach for Kindness, or at GoodAthleteProject.com. Get involved with some sort of combative, because everything about that is really dictated on what can I do in training that makes me punch harder? What can I do in training that makes me kick harder? If this 600 pound deadlift doesn't help me avoid a punch, then why am I doing it? And so that, that almost Eastern philosophy of training has really helped me stay grounded into making sure that my metrics for my athletes uh, was, was hyper-focused on skill acquisition. I love that. The Eastern philosophy of training. Do you study Eastern philosophy in any other ways by chance? I try to. I try to. Um, I've, I've been really disciplined in my life about not sticking to one certain type of mentality. Some days are better than others um, and certain uh, discussions are better than others. But I've, I've been really good about saying, okay, um, and a lot of that came, honestly, from when I started in this field and I started to do internships, um, I would have young people go, I just got my USA weightlifting. And I would notice that all of their programming immediately shifted to 99% USA weightlifting. Or, hey, I got my powerlifting. Or, hey, I got my FMS. Or, hey, I got this. And I always noticed that the moment somebody dives into that, that all of their programming versus what people always try to do is say, let's take that and let's fit it back into our system. Let's plug and play, figure out where we can use it, what we need to replace with what we're currently doing. Um, and I've always tried to do that with Western philosophy, Eastern philosophy of saying, you know, in the, in, in the West, it's, hey, you know, I'm going to be as strong as an oak versus the Eastern philosophy is, you know, I'm going to bend, not break kind of issue. And so to be able to blend those two together really helped me out uh, throughout my career. Absolutely. That's such a kind of a wise thing to say. If you want to ensure that you are wrong, you first have to think that you're absolutely right. You know what I mean? So it's, it's only when you like proffer absolutes 
that you can be like caught in a corner and wrong. If you're if you're in a sort of a state of constant analysis, that could be like whether it's just interacting with the world, envisioning the field, coming up with a training philosophy, or even just looking at an athlete. Um, to be able to kind of stick and move, um, to use the Muay Thai term. Uh, I don't know if that's a real Muay Thai term, but <laughs> but that feels like that's the thing. And one of the things that we're super interested in, like our logo is essentially, we're all about intentionality. And we're like, no, this isn't like a, a half-assed field. This isn't like, you know, you don't just pull a strength program from a blog on the internet somewhere and, and, that, and that becomes your Bible. And that's, the, you know, it, it's a state of constant analysis, reinterpretation. Um, we call it the prod and respond model sometimes. Uh, you know what I mean? See how, see how the athlete reacts. See how the team reacts. Absolutely. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, when you get into this field with very passionate coaches, um, you're going to get really talented people um, to the point where you can almost grade it artistically. And one of the things that you always find is artists um, make very terrible debaters because it's my way or the highway, which was for me, when I first started in this career, that was a huge thing for me where in college, physiology, biomechanics, uh, neurophys, all of that came really easy to me. Um, and, and that drew me to, to this field. And as I developed my system, as I developed my program, I got so confident where it became it's my way or the highway. The moment you put yourself into some hot water is where, just like you said, you really start to get tested. And when I first came out and I got a job with the Bucks, um, I remember going in as a hot gun and be like, hey, I know how to develop speed. I know how to do this, that, and a third. And everything is about, you know, this was... 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And I'm sitting there like, okay, this is how it's all about functional training. And, and the, the current system wasn't that. So the, the guy that was in charge of the whole thing, he was a hit guy. So everything was machines and um, hammer strength and blah, blah, blah. And for me, I was, um, for me, it was a, I, I put out such a bad attitude about the approach because in my head, I thought I knew everything. And it's really interesting to me where we had one of our players goes, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing, Ralph, but I can't block anybody if I don't have, and I'm going to say this bluntly, I'm not going to block anybody if I don't have any lead in my ass. And I literally stood there and I go, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. And I literally, I went home and I was like, you know what? He's right. Um, I have to, I spent the last couple of years really demonizing bodybuilding and and putting on excessive bulk and mass um, because I thought that functional training was was all the rage like we're going to really push this out there we've been doing it all wrong when you know all it took was somebody like Dave to literally say you know what I'm a small tight end already you can't expect me to block Warren Sapp you can't expect me to block these guys if I can't push some 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 big weight in my in, in, in my rear end and I was like, crap, he's right. And so I really, that was a huge moment for me that I said, you know what? I got to soften things. I've got to start, I got to start over. I got to check my ego and I've got to figure out. Um, recently I had a, um, starting in 2008, we worked with, uh, started working with the Olympic swim coach, David Marsh, uh, who was world renowned within the swimming community. And I, one of the, the best messages I always got from him was, be the coach that your athlete needs. And he goes, sometimes I have to baby him. Sometimes I have to crack the whip. 
sometimes I have to lie to them. He goes, they know I'm lying, but sometimes they just want to hear my voice say what they want me to hear. And it was such a huge thing. And I, to this day, I always, I always rest on those words. I'm like, be the athlete that, be the coach that your athlete needs. Yeah, I love that, and that's. Um, I think it's important to embed in this messaging coaches who struggle with this, because like young coaches probably can't improvise like you can. You've built up that filter through a long time, through many years, a lot of experience at a really high level. Not everyone comes in with that filter, obviously. It, so it reminds me of, of a process that we use, of which is we call it the anchor and tether method. Your process can be anchored in a few things, and these are the things that I'm not willing to stray from. And it's like I'm not going to prioritize. This is just hypothetical. I, I'm not going to prioritize a 600-pound deadlift and not pay attention to hip mobility or, or or whatever you feel is important. That said, you can let the tether out. You can let the rope out a little bit when you're dealing with high-level athletes with high-level demands, right? So I'm still not going to say it's okay to have a 600-pound uh, deadlift at for the sake of mobility, you know, and, and not take care of mobility. But I will, because of your advanced training age and my, and my ability to interact with you, maybe we can adapt a little bit on the edges of this. We're not going to sacrifice our true beliefs, but there's some adaptation in that. But establishing yeah. the anchors is, is one point. Yours, obviously, is highly functional. Oh, absolutely. And, and to be honest, what I've learned is what I don't want to do is because of you don't want to push expertise on an athlete if they love Olympic lifting I don't want to walk in there, and, and this isn't the case, but I don't want to sit there and, and burst anybody's bubble. Mm -hmm. That immediately puts them on the defensive. I don't want to be like, hey, Olympic lifting is terrible. You should immediately stop it. Train completely this way. As opposed to, I'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's just figure out where we can put it in. Let's fit into the system. Um, keep deadlifting. If you love deadlifting and it makes you confident and feel powerful and big, we're going to ride that. Let's keep doing that. But I'm going to go ahead and try to, to, to add, be like, okay, deadlift, awesome. Let's add this hip mobility exercise or let's add this exercise on top of that. You've trained a guy who's, among other many like famous people, you've trained a guy that goes by the nickname Primetime. What, one of the reasons that it's so compelling hearing you talk about Dion, Dion Sanders, for anyone who's not familiar, is just how thoughtfully you interacted with him. Meaning one of the first things you said about it was like, you can't train other people like this. You can use it maybe as an anchor, as a model, like this is kind of top level, but you certainly couldn't ask a high school punt returner to do that. Talk a little bit about that, like like where you set the standard and how you adapt for people like that. Well, it's interesting because I've learned over the course of my career that if you take all 100 variables that would make an athlete successful, everybody falls somewhere within that spectrum on all of those. And a Dion physically gifted, mentally gifted, um, way up there, way up there. But there's a lot of things that he would fall short of other athletes. Um, it just so happens that his speed reserve, his athletic reserve was so high yeah. that it allowed him to get away with certain techniques that a lot of athletes, that most athletes in the world shouldn't even bother trying. And we run into that problem because we emulate it. Um, it happens from uh, it, it happens in every day of every sport of everything that uh, no matter what we we want to look at the pinnacle and we always forget that there's a lot of really God blessed athletes out there that we can't we just can't do it and and it and I don't say that to kill anybody's spirit 
Um, but one of the things that we have learned is there is a certain level of passion and dedication and engagement that all, I can't even tell you a single athlete that we have had the opportunity to work with that didn't have a hyper high level of engagement into their sport. And even from that, I look at that as a skill in and of itself. And I tell parents, I tell athletes all the time, if you are, if you are not obsessive about being successful and improving in your sport, then you need to readjust and you need to course correct your goals and dreams and ambitions. And Dion was just like that. He was a consummate professional about going and, and figuring out what the wide receiver was trying to do to him, figuring out, okay, this is an offense. I'm going to study offenses so well that I know exactly what they're trying to do to me. And so now I can not only understand what they're trying to do to me, but now I can use my gifts, my skills to jump the ball. So when I see a receiver way on the other side of the field doing this and I can catch that out of the corner of my eye, I know there's a good chance that my receiver is going to do this and now I can bait or I can trail because my gifts allow me to either catch up or to jump a route or whatever. And it would be hard pressed for anybody out there in the country that he is a, a one percenter of a one percenter of a one percenter that has the ability to, you know, we may all want to bait, but the bottom line is if you don't have that closing speed, if you don't have that four two speed, there's just nothing that you're going to be able to do. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's um, an interesting and a really good point. When we first started this program here, oftentimes people would look all the way to the top. You know, what is what is so-and-so doing? Let's mimic, at the time it was, let's mimic Brian Urlacher's training or whatever it might look like. And it sounds like a really good idea. And I think that can inform your process. It can't be your process. Well, the, crazy, the craziest part is what most people who don't deal with high-level athletes um, often forget is their speed reserve, their strength reserve, their their presence, their physical stature allows them to not be great at fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being one of those issues where if you're not 6'5", 300 pounds, then you can't do some of the things that that person does. If you don't run 4'2", and they forget that it sounds ridiculous for me to say, but if if Dion would have been more fundamentally sound, how much that would have improved his play. Um, you know, and you take somebody like a Larry Fitzgerald, and he's a perfect example for me. He is a very blessed athlete yep. who is unbelievable at his fundamentals, and that's why he ends up being one of those uncoverable kind of receivers. Right, right. Even later into his career, it's exceptional. Yeah, that, that's awesome. exactly we call it the talent delusion and yes. uh we we uh i came up with that term love it's, it it's um we came up with actually dealing with swimmers so we were tracking we're like how do um the basic bedrock physiological things like movement nutrition and sleep impact an athlete's development so the uh we did a quick study i'll give you the short version of it essentially we took times early mid-season and then at the state championship meet or whenever an athlete was peaking. And then all through that time, we were working with girl, uh, swimmers in the weight room and we were tracking their sleep, just straight up hours of sleep. That's it. Just how long, for how long did you sleep last night? And what we found was like 
you can probably predict it, uh, but it was just startling how stark it was. Essentially, if you got, if you were averaging fewer than six and a half hours of sleep per night, then you were four times more likely to finish on the bottom half of the team in terms of performance enhancement over the course of the season. But from that is where this idea started to pop up because people were like, we have this abstract understanding that like that sleep's important and that recovery is important. But I think a lot of the people, when I say they were in the bottom half in terms of performance improvement, that doesn't mean that their times were in the bottom half of the team. So these are still athletes who, are, who might be meddling at meets and stuff like that. So it just never, we're not saying you're not good. We're just saying that you're not getting that much better and, and you could if you, if you were to address these potentially. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not maximizing potential. So, But even from a technique standpoint, swimming, and, and again, I say this to young strength and conditioning coaches, get involved with swimming because it is such a huge shift in your mindset. Something as simple as um, like the kick, for instance. Somebody doesn't have the genetic anomaly of having hypermobile ankles. The kick has to be different. They can't kick the same way that, and, and that sounds ridiculous, but somebody with hypermobile ankles genetically can rise above somebody who does it. When you start talking about those talents, somebody with um, double jointed knees has a distinct advantage in the pool. Somebody who has a lordotic curve, excessive lordotic curve in their in their mid back has a distinct advantage. Somebody who's double jointed in the shoulders. So all of these things that we look at outside of the pool as, as red flags on this huge genetic anomaly in the water, like something as simple as that kick where if their feet can't bend negatively or their ankles, now all of a sudden that propulsion, when that leg kicks up, they're all they're really doing is just keeping their feet afloat. Now, when we have athletes that have that hypermobile ankle, now all of a sudden when they kick, it is propelling them through the water, and it's a completely different animal. So to be able to watch Orion Lochte with his double-jointed ankles, with his double-jointed knees, with his lordotic curve, I mean, he is really built for, for the water. He's built to succeed in the water. I'd like to hear, uh, it's the pipeline standards, right? Yes. Feel free to, don't give away anything proprietary, uh, but, but, I, but I think... Um, with all of this, like, dude, you're the expert. You're really, really good at what you do. And I hope that doesn't make you uh, feel uncomfortable, but it's just the truth. And I think one of the reasons that that's the truth and has maintained like its level of truth is because you do more than just teach people how to stretch and run and squat and, and, and do that sort of stuff. So let's talk about stuff that goes beyond strength a little bit. What are some of the mindset cues you teach in the weight room? Or, or maybe we go back even further, and I'm sorry to jump around, but I'd like to hear you mentioned sort of the Eastern philosophy, how that's like found itself in your your training, your uh, programming. How is how is that manifested in your life? Like, what has transitioned from from the weight room to wherever you are right now? Is that a den? It's a beautiful place, whatever it is. <laughs> well, I think the interesting part for me is is I've made so many mistakes in my life. I've tried to learn from all of them. And, and the one thing everybody always asks me, well, what's your big goal right now? And my biggest goal is to be the best grandfather to the, the grandson that, that, that I may or may not ever meet. And when I say that is what I teach Raider, he is going to teach his kids. 
just like the athletes that I work with, we're very blessed where now I'm at a point where I've done this so long that the athletes that we used to train are now sending their kids to me. And it's such a, a humbling thing to sit there and be like, oh my God, you know, I used to teach your dad this, or I used to teach your mom this, and yada, yada, yada. So um, I, I think the biggest thing for me is I've learned to understand the concept of win the war. You might have to lose a battle here and there. And, and that was a hard lesson for me to learn because I was, I've always been such a hard charger, um, win at all costs kind of thing. And Eastern philosophy will tell you, you got, you got to bend. You can't sit there and try to win every battle because it's just going to wear on you. And not physically, but emotionally, mentally, it just will wear you thin, especially as a seasoned strength and coach. You're going to bring those home. You're going to bring those battles home. Um, they're going to upset you. And, and all of those frustrations will carry over into your next session. They're going to carry over into your next offseason. And you can't let that happen. I still have 300 athletes that I still have to work with that are still looking to make the Olympic trials. And just because you're being a lazy piece of dog poo or just because you aren't following the protocols that I ask you to do, I get frustrated with you. And now somebody doesn't get to accomplish their dreams. Right. So able to bend, being able to let some of that water roll off your back. Um, we just read a, an interesting article at staff meeting where it talked about the the unregulated strength and conditioning, collegiate strength and conditioning coach uh, field that there have been. I forgot what the number is. It's crazy how many deaths have been since the year 2000. Uh, and some of those are coming at the hands of strength and conditioning coaches uh, that might have got a weekend certification or they may have gotten a yada, yada, yada. And to me, my point that I brought up with, there just isn't enough that deals with the emotional content of coaching. Everybody's like, oh, physiology, anatomy, know your muscles, know your blah, blah, blah. But you, you got to know what we consider in our pipeline. The, the original pipeline standards came about because I had to figure out how to develop better coaches. Mm -hmm. And so it really started out with, um, pipeline, the first P was presence, then it became IQ, professionalism, and then emotional quotient. Uh, the, the emotional intelligence was, was one of the things that I feel in this field is so lacking that it, it, it's hard. It's hard when, when you know your stuff and somebody questions that. If you're young, you get questioned and it immediately changes your mindset where you are no longer success-oriented, you go on the defensive. And so being able to bend in that scenario, being able to say, listen, okay, what are they really trying to get at? Maybe they're just emotionally uncomfortable. Um, we recently had a situation where we found out that one of the kids that we are working with who was very drawn in um, is being abused. And so it ends up being one of those situations that if you can't control yourself, your emotions, then the way that he reacts to you talking to him will frustrate the crap out of you and it'll, it'll affect the way that you approach us. But what we try to do and, and one of my coaches, we, I said, if you didn't know that this person was being abused at home, would you, how has that changed your actions? Right. 
And, and my coach was like, tremendously. And I go, I'll tell you right now, most likely you'll never know with the majority of athletes that background scenario. And for them, it was just a light bulb like crap. You know, I go, so you need to learn to be patient. You need to open up. You need to figure out, you know, maybe it's it's not a black and white issue. It's not a one plus one equals two kind of deal. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's so, it's like every individual is so complex. Yeah, you don't know what sort of, for lack of a better term, trauma some an athlete has experienced throughout his or her life. Uh, but you can only, you can almost guarantee there's been some. The ability to read that is complicated. But like you said, it, it, you're almost better off to default to the assumption that this person has, this human being, has something going on in their life and I ought to be conscious of it. It's, it, it is, you know, we've, I feel really lucky in the past couple of years, we've literally traveled the world and worked with thousands of people and it's awesome. And, and, I, and I do believe that every coach that we've worked with, anyone who's willing to bring in the Good Athlete Project, I, I believe that they want to be good at what they do. I believe it. I believe that's why they got in the profession, all the above. I also believe that it's easy to, to kind of go astray. Uh, or, or easy to coach, fo- coach football skills instead of coaching a human being up to play football, which are, yes. which are totally different things. And obviously the latter includes understanding or trying to understand the human being. That's tough, but, but necessary for what we do. It's kind of like, it goes back to that idea, like anyone can distribute a program. In fact, Alex is sitting right here. He did an internship at Loyola Chicago. On maybe a day where Alex did not have a cup of coffee, because otherwise he would have been boom, 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 all over the place all the time. Um, he was like, dude, you got to be more than a whiteboard. You can't just distribute the workout. You just can't. You can't just put information out there. You've got to be interactive. You got to be mobile. You got to be working the room essentially, looking closely not only at biomechanical concerns, but like, but human concerns. Why is that kid down today? It might just be that he didn't get enough sleep or whatever. He's in a, but it might be something else, and we ought to uh, be conscious of it. All right, I want to hear more about some of the stuff that you embed into your coaching. You like when you post, like you have so many good things to say. How do you get? Well, let's do this. How do you get an athlete to to pay attention to detail in that same way? Because there's one immediate transferable. They're they're paying really close attention to their the subtleties of their movements. Um, have you found that that translates to the pool, to the field, to the court? Uh, and if so, how do you ensure that? Well, there's a number of ways. Um, the number one thing is. We try to learn from their arena. If, if we can create that connection, so for instance, I spent so much time on deck with our swimming coaches from, from the guys at University of Tampa, and then eventually in 2008, we linked up with David Marsh. He had a guy, Bob Grosek, who was one of the best technical swimming coaches in the world, and just taking as many notes as I could that dealt specifically with swimming. What are they looking for? How are they correcting? What are some of the common problems? Um, so-and-so is injured. We're going to do a biomechanical analysis to figure out why so-and-so's right shoulders hurt, not their left. Why is their neck strained? Why is there yada, yada, yada? And taking that information and then just filing it. Because now when I have an athlete, somebody goes, oh, my blah, blah, blah is sore. And I go, okay, so let me cross-reference. Let me figure that. Oh, well, when you do this exercise, do you do this? I do. And now all of a sudden it gives you that immediate feedback. And then once you get their eyes to look at you, then you can say that will help with these two things. It'll reduce pressure on this joint or it'll create increased performance in the pool, no matter what that is. The moment you can do that, 
it's a game changer for you. Because my very first moment when I first started the University of Tampa was crack the whip, crack the whip, crack the whip. You know, by God, you're going to do everything perfect. I'm going to make you do it. And we're not going to accept anything but your very best. And, and at the end of the year, a couple of bad things happened. Number one was I lost my voice. Yeah. And number two is with our men's soccer team, we won, we won the national championship. Wow. And it went from being because we were such quote unquote slave drivers. We did, we, we developed grit and perseverance in our championship run. We ended up winning all the way through the playoff run. Most of our games, if not all of our games, either in the last golden goal, the last minute overtime, it was just, and our guys were running circles around people because we, we very prepared. Um, and I remember the coach attributing all of that to us. And then I remember falling off the cliff when I listened to my athletes who were graduating, my seniors say, I'm glad I'm graduating because I'll never do another one of Raph's exercises ever again. And that was like such a huge slap in my face. Yeah. Because as a coach, you're like, yes, I want you to win, but I'm giving you my heart and soul. These are my inventions. These are my, my tools. These are, this is my craft, my art. And, and I had a coming to Jesus moment there where I was like, I got to come up with something to save my voice. And I started to change the way that I approach this of saying, you know what, I'm going to try to convince you to walk with me versus grab you by the ear and pull you along. Totally. And, and, and it was a night and day difference. And, and starting from there was the moment. And I would say this was in 90, late 90s. I started to go through and reverse engineer everything that I did, every protocol, every exercise. And then I took it a step further of saying, why was an athlete who was unbelievably physically gifted, why were they not performing well? Um, why would somebody make that kind of a bonehead mistake in a game? Going to the coaches and saying, hey, you know, I saw that you released Johnny Smith. What was it about Johnny? Because Johnny's 6'5", 270-pound defensive lineman with all the skills in the world. Why is it that you cut him? Um, a good friend of mine, Corey Knowles, runs the SEAL Challenge. He's a mentor, so everybody in the Southeast has to go through him to get a SEAL contract. Wow. And I literally working hand-in-hand hand with him of saying for the longest time we would prep people and they would have this huge checked-off list of saying, I can run this fast. I can swim this fast. I have all of my T's crossed and all my I's dotted. And then they would get washed out in week one. So-and-so hmm. Johnny Smith rang the bell on the first day. And we're just like, like, how does that happen? And so we just kind of got on this quest of just reverse engineering. Okay, physically they're great. But one of the things that we recognized was if you can't express that physical greatness, then you're not doing anybody any good and you're wasting all of your time. And so we started to figure out, you know, what was preventing somebody from expressing that greatness. And we that's where it started to get into a lot of the conversations of, yes, we can provide 
you with the opportunity to develop more talent, um, but how can we create more passion? How can we create um, a, a, a fight against impossibility? You know, are those things that we feel that we can develop? Because sometimes we found that when the guys were up against huge odds, they were failing because mentally, and, and this is an interesting thing, we talk about the curse, what we call the curse of the gifted, is some of the guys were so gifted and they were used to being at the top of the food chain that the moment that they faced adversity, they crumbled. Yeah. And we started to say, crap, you know what? We can't baby these guys anymore. We can't treat these guys who are very talented, who have a lot of presence. Um, they haven't been challenged. Yep. You know, it's, it's tough to challenge that 6'6 guy. I mean, we've got a kid. We got a kid who's 15 years old, basketball player, and he's 6'9", and he's probably about 300 pounds. Big, big boy on the basketball court. Wow. And he's so used to just manhandling people and getting him in the weight room. Um, I listened to this really interesting conversation um, about Michael Jordan and, and Steve Kerr. If you ever got a chance to listen to that when, when Michael Jordan punched Steve Kerr, no, you need to, you, I think it's on YouTube. You need to check it out. It's actually amazing because he talks about, um, rising to the challenge and he gained a lot of respect for Steve Kerr because they, he wouldn't back down and they got in each other's face. Um, but what I got out of that, that pertains to this conversation was Phil Jackson, um, partnered those two up together in a drill and he kept giving Kerr the call like, okay, foul on Jordan, foul on Jordan, foul on Jordan. And Jordan, in Jordan's words, when you when you watch the thing, he goes, I just got so pissed off. He goes, I knew he was playing with me, but every time he would stop, he would break my momentum. And he goes, I just had it, and I squared off, and I punched Steve Kerr right in the eye. Wow. And it's just an amazing thing to listen to that because you you have this pedestal mindset of Jordan of how tough and how amazing. But I think that moment he was challenged. Yeah. And I think that we could all learn from that. So literally taking everything that we could possibly think of and figure out how we can systematize and reverse engineer to give. And and this is the part where we failed initially was we were trying to work with these 18 year old kids going to buds. We were trying to work with these 16, 17, 18 year old kids going to play college football when we realized that they may have a one to two to three, 5% increase in performance, but we spent so much time breaking bad habits. And so from that point, we, my team, we said, you know what? We got to start them young. We got to go to these young kids like my son's age. And, and we need to figure out how we can win the war by making sure that they have all of the necessary things to win their battles. Yeah. And that's really kind of how we reverse engineered this, the entirety of our training system. I love it, man. I think, and, and you're identifying something that, that also comes up in, in our world a lot. And that is essentially what I've seen is maybe and it's the thing that Phil Jackson was an absolute expert at managing talent and talking to like the, the gifted is that's like a, 
it, it could be it's, if, if coaching were like a major in college, and I think it is in some colleges, I mean, that could be a course right there, how to manage yeah. the gifted. You know, what we see probably too often to the detriment of talented players is, you know, an assistant, say it's an assistant football coach at the high school level and the kid's a big time recruit, you know, and there's colleges giving him offers and all, or maybe he's already accepted his scholarship. There, there's this propensity to, to buddy up too much. And, and the truth is we're all really just like older versions of our high school selves. And we're, and, and when you see coaches kind of like, just like, uh, yucking it up with, with the star quarterback, I think that's okay. It's just not equipping that star quarterback with the things that are going to make him or her, him or her, I suppose, successful at the next level. So, so, and it really just depends and talk about reverse engineering. That might be the most important part, identifying what your purpose is. If your purpose is to equip this kid uh, for success down the road, in career and in life, then buddying up and, and, and uh, just trying to be pals probably isn't the way. Uh, and right. it, it reminds me also of the Carolina Panthers a few years. What was that? Three years ago when the Panthers played the Broncos. Remember that year in the right. Super Bowl? And yeah. I don't know if you know any of those guys, and I'm sure they're great guys, and they were a super talented team. And Cam is the man, and probably you know he does a lot of good stuff, and he's super talented. But it was clear to me. That, uh, and I and I like Ron Rivera a lot. He's a Chicago, you know, former yeah, Bears guy. So uh, but it's like they were riding the wave of success and not teaching things that would make them successful. Even so, uh, meaning you know, in that year there were there were two times they were behind. You know, when they were up, they would roll. They'd freaking roll and they'd be posing for pictures after. You know, they had a blast with it. And I love to see. Uh, you like to see people having fun, of course. But twice they were behind, and in both cases they, they just were not prepared to make the climb. They could ride the wave. But I don't know if they could make the splash and start one. So. Absolutely. You know what's crazy is I've been blessed because I've been doing this so long. I've seen so many of our high-level athletes completely crash that one of the biggest things that we could give our young stars is the opportunity how to deal with failure. And when I say failure, I'm not specifically addressing did you make a bad play in the game? You know, you got burnt deep, yada, yada, yada. It really struck a chord with me when I started to work with Olympic athletes when I realized how many of them succumbed to post-Olympic depression. Mm -hmm. And that was such a huge eye-opener for me. That was such a huge mind-blown thing because it was about that time that we started to go into preparing special operations, not just guys going into buds because there's a big difference. Right. But teammates, and then guys eventually who are getting out of the service. Um, and it was a huge opportunity for me to learn that we weren't doing enough to prepare these guys. to. When we talk about developing skill sets for the game, we weren't doing enough to prepare them for failures, for successes, for what's going to happen when it's time to hang up your cleats. Um, like, for instance, when we were prepping uh, one of our high-level boxers, I knew my physiology inside and out, being involved in, in competitive uh, fight sciences for so long, that was an easy thing. But the night before the fight of a big, like $10 million kind of fight, huge paydays, um, of people calling my fighter saying, Hey, you know, I need four tickets ringside. And you're like, Oh, well, you know, listening to my fighter 
having to having to, to, to go through how much pain of saying, hey, I can't get you tickets or I can't get you a comped room at MGM this week, you know, and it's just, and so you learn those things. You learn that somewhere along the line, we failed these athletes of giving them opportunities, not just how to deal with failure, but how to deal with successes as well. And I think that's also a motivating factor for us is to figure out can can we create enough tools for these guys where, where where they can fight that battle if they have to fight it? Dude, no question. You just made me think of something. So it, the question always is, does your behavior match your goal for us as coaches? And, and then does the preparation meet the demand? And and I wonder if we're doing enough to prepare these guys for life because I mean, that is the real truth. And and in this current climate, this almost this might, dude, unintentionally bring us all the way back to that first thing, with which is uh, what's happening with football. The psychological picture of the post NFL athlete. Let's just go down that road. But obviously, there's a translation to um, the special forces guys or anyone who's served in any way, really. But certainly, post high career, uh, high level career athletes, how to go from and we used the term before, obsessive about this one thing, this very specific mindset. How to transition? All of a sudden, you're you're 40, say, and your life has changed in a way that someone like me couldn't understand. I played football. I played football after college. I never played in an NFL stadium. Uh, I even had a, a period of my life where I was transitioning back into like the regular world. I cannot imagine what a guy like I, I don't want to say names, disrespect anyone, but 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 let me just say it's very easy for me to imagine why someone would have trouble with that down the line. And in all in, in all the concern with football. Listen, concussions are a real issue. It's something I'm, I've studied and present on and write about, and I'd, ha I'd be happy to have that conversation all day. But the thing that is going neglected, I think, recently is the complex psychological state of these guys post-career. If you take that and compound it with potentially, even call it low-level damage, because that's what it is, low-level damage compounded with this really complicated tapestry of psychological concerns, where, where to turn is the question. And then maybe, yeah. You have an issue, and, and this comes back to my my whole kick myself in the butt with the University of Tampa soccer team was we know that we're going to make bad decisions. We're going to make worse decisions if we have traumatic brain injuries. So the idea is there's a couple of pillars that we need to stand on top of. And number one is regulating, self-regulating our own brain chemistry. For the longest time, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and, and give you some over-the-counter or some prescription oh, yeah. to do that. And, and we realize that can we develop a system that allows them to regulate their own brain chemistry? And that's exercise. Yep. And that is any form of exercise that you can do. And the problem that we run into is you retire from the NFL you're not working out with your team anymore. The moment that you retire from the military, you are no longer required to do PT anymore. The moment that you walk away from anything, it's now my routine. So somebody who, who has that spectrum of obsessiveness, now my routine has been taken away from me, which is basically my medication. Mm -hmm. So to work backwards from there, if we don't develop the habitual use of exercise as self-regulating medicine, we're setting our athletes up for a huge fault when they get to that point. So 
our we talk with our our six-year-olds all the way through our high school and our college even the guys on the teams is get in the habit of doing something every day we say earn your sunrise so every day get up and do something to earn your sunrise it that could be a walk that could be a bike if you if you're a triathlete do it if you love jumping rope just get in the habit of doing something the next pillar is there's we have no support and i think that that crosses a lot of lines and that's a long conversation of we as guys are so used and and when i say guys when you start getting into the realm of overachieving and high level high successful athletes is there has to be that that public that performance persona of strength yeah nothing bothers me um i'm not sad i'm not blah 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 i am just strong all the time yeah and they just don't have an outlet to be able to release any of that. So then we follow those same scenarios where now I'm not on the team anymore. You may still have friends, but you're not in the locker room anymore. Right. You know, you retire from a special operations team. I mean, they take your ID card. Um, you, you, you're off base. You're not allowed on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just the guys that I confide with, yeah. I no longer have access to them. Um, same thing with the Olympic team and the Olympic team is very heightened, especially when it comes to swimming, where swimming has is, is up there. It's like track and swimming in terms of the, the world stage and how much popularity. And so with the swim team, it's literally the, the Olympic trials are in July and all of a sudden um, you do training camp in San Antonio. You did training camp in Puerto Rico and then you guys are living together, breathing together, doing all of this awesome and it's just like, and it gets heightened by this amazing experience at the Olympics. And then, bye. That's it. Right. And then that's it. And the guys are just like, okay, what do I do now? I don't really know what to do. I'm totally, dude. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'll share this with you. Like, and even if you have an incredibly supportive family and friend base, if they didn't share your Olympic level mentality, there, there's always going to be a gap in communication. Like, I, I remember even stuff like, and I freaking I love my friends. I really lucked out. I got a great group of friends that have had them from way back. But like, there there were days when I was trying to play football post college, and uh, there was like something going on downtown. And they're like, "We're gonna pick you up, whatever." And I'm like, "I got a I got a session. I got to be to." And the lack of understanding, and you know, to no fault of theirs, but like, you're right. The lack of under there are there's a select few that can identify with that. So then the question becomes: instead of lamenting that forever. It's identifying that that's a truth and then hopefully equipping people with strategies to like reincorporate with the general population, I suppose. Oh, huge. That is huge. Absolutely. And figuring out and, and we tell our young, our rising stars this all the time, figure out who that circle is. You may not know who it is today. Right. You may come across somebody when you get to college. You may come across somebody, one of your training parts, a coach, a blah, blah, blah. It could be a therapist, yeah. whoever it is, but you need to strengthen that circle because that circle is going to be something that you strongly, the habitual relying on that circle is going to save your life one day. That's a really, that's, I like that a lot. Strengthen the circle. I've been toying, this is an idea that you and I can toss around for years to come if you want, but this return, we, we call it, I conceptually call it like a return to life protocol in the same way we have a return, sort of a template, a return to, uh, to play protocol after injury. Um, there ought to be some kind of return to life protocol. Everyone's on their own unique timeline, but here are some of the things that we have to, here's some of the boxes we have to check before we can successfully put someone back into 
the world. Oh, it's huge. And and the problem there's it's riddled with hurdles right now because because of the perception, like I said, the the performance persona. Um, I was very blessed to be involved with two amazing careers that I I watched both of them completely crumble because of lack of of, of that circle where. It's amazing when when you build that performance persona and I recognize it. I don't know the guy, but I recognize in his interviews, I recognize in in the things that I read when I watch Terrell Owens become TO. And and yeah. seeing that evolution where hey, I'm Terrell Owens. I appreciate you drafting me to I'm T.O. too. I can't believe you can't cover T.O. like that, where now you're referring yourself in the third person. You're referring to your performance persona third person to me means that you now can no longer separate who you truly are with with the person that you need to be on the field. And there, there needs to be that that constant conversation. I need to have a gym that that literally calls me up after a game and says, Hey, knucklehead, you're being an idiot. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, and, and that, that can only happen through time. Yeah. Too many people wait till it's too late, but that needs to be in, 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 like we said, it, it doesn't matter who that is. Find somebody you trust, somebody that you know can be brutally honest with you that says, Raph, you're being an idiot. That is just ridiculous, or you need to do this, or you make a boneheaded play, and I need to trust that you're doing what's best for me that isn't fiduciary. You're not my boy. You're not, I'm not paying you to do it. It's just literally, I care about you, and, and you're going to speak the truth to me. And then the other problem is we come across a lot of coaches. I remember having a long conversation with our Olympic athletes where one of the coaches was, you be singular in your focus. Nothing else should cloud your mind except for winning a medal. And in my mind, I remember there was a point in my life where I would completely buy into that, that a lot of people do. But because I've been so fortunate enough to be on the other end, I recognize that that's the worst thing you can do. Where, you know, to the point where he was saying, You know, if you have a dog, get rid of your dog because it's going to bark and keep you up at night. You know, if you have a girlfriend and it's not serious, get rid of her. You know, you've got a boyfriend and and he's not he's not going to marry you. You need to break up. And I was just like, wow. Yeah, because that's the perfect recipe for post Olympic depression. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to fight those battles. But you're 100 percent correct is that seed needs to be planted right now in our young rising stars and they need to nurture it. They need to grow it so that by the time they get to that position, they're like, I have my circle of friends. I have my interests outside of this. that can help me be grounded and keep Mm -hmm. my feet on the ground and and instead of my head in the clouds. That's totally right. And and, uh, it reminds me of the, the distinction between shame and guilt. Shame essentially means that you feel this uh, a certain way based on who you are. Like I am bad. Guilt is like you feel a certain way because of what you did. Like I should not have kicked the puppy. What, you know what I mean? And right. guilt is good, I think. Like we have to have guilt. Like we, we have to have that. And 
don't freaking don't kick the puppy anymore. You should feel bad about that. But right. you might not be a bad human being because you made a bad decision. We just have to adapt, and then and then you get to um, this is this is the thing that we have to kind of unbraid post careers. Like you are you were an elite athlete, but I take it back. Like that's what you did. That wasn't you. You're right. uh, and if we can say what you did was this, you stuck to uh, an elite level championship caliber process. You were able to turn on your mindset uh, to get through training and then turn it on again to perform and like, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. If you can say that's not you, but that's what you did. And then we can kind of take that and transfer it to whatever's next, you know, take right. that same sort of process and mindset and put that into business or put that into a relationship or whatever. Now we've really given somebody something. Now they've really gained from their career instead of just may maybe a championship or not along the way you're right you're right and i think i think a lot of what we do with hero initiative is designed to give athletes those mirror moments to challenge that um and i'll be the first person to tell you that there was a span in the middle third of my career where i recognized society didn't like the way that I coached because as the harshness, there's some abrasiveness um, because there's truths um, on one aspect where some of you, Oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. I'm like, no, you're not doing great. Right. We do it better in these three different ways. Um, and, and there was a middle third that was, that was the public optic um, was very, was very critical towards me. Yeah. I think that we've, we've gotten out of that point where we're starting to recognize that to spare our feelings, we need those mirror moments to expose ourselves to, to what we're going to do under stress, what we're going to do when the pressure's on. And exactly what you just said is just giving the athletes an opportunity to say, um, wow, I can't believe, you know, I would do that. Or I can't believe that that's how I would react or, God, I never really thought in a million years today I was going to wake up and punch Steve Kerr in the face. Right, right. It ends up being one of those situations that if a good coach doesn't expose that to you and offer a good course correction, then then you are going to fall into that that pitfall down the road because you've only been you've only been given and, and spoon fed. Hey, you're awesome, Jim. You're great, Jim. Oh, that was really good and amazing. As opposed to uh, I don't know about that last one. Right. And that's fair. And I think it takes um, – I've been called prickly before in the gym as well. Is that prickly. fair, Alex? I like yeah. Yeah. I like prickly. You know yeah. uh, but, so here's how, here's how I wrap that up. And actually Alex is getting anxious because he's got some lightning round questions for you. But, but there's something – and you mentioned the East, East Asian religion or, or Eastern philosophy. And, and I think there is a tie – to the directness, and I and I actually I'm not afraid to admit this. Like, I have a book of haiku here. Uh, I took a class on East Asian philosophy when I was in college. I'm, I like I, I still I, I try to stay fairly well versed. Uh, and there's something in that. I, I think part of the reason I am the way I am. I'm not gonna lie, like part of it's because I am passionate and I like to get jacked up, and I think it's fun. Uh, but the other the other part is um, is I, is in the way a haiku is only what it is. You know, I, I don't know if you've read any of that, but it's essentially it's a, it's it's a not a very flowery, not a lot of extra syllables. It's very just a, a concrete. This is what's going on. This is what I'm seeing, uh, and there's beauty in this. 
I think that's the way I like to approach certain things as well. Here's what I see. I'm not judging your, I'm not judging you as like a bad person for that technique or that effort or whatever it is, but, but, here's, but here's what I see and here's what I think we ought to fix. Uh, I don't think it's always received that way. Sometimes, you know, it hurts more to hear it than it does to say it. That's fair. There's something refreshing in that. When you can well, kind of one of the things that down. we try to do, especially I do with my staff, is um, through the week, eventually our training, our microcycle ends on Fun Friday. Mm-hmm. So Fun Friday is really, um, I'm going to teach you how to run in the beginning of the week. I'm going to teach you a basic acceleration drill. And here's the 10 different components, these tiny little angles and yada, yada, yada muscles that will contribute to that. So then the next day we come in and say we do it exactly again. Uh, with just a different method, a different rhyme and a reason. And then we do it again. But and, and we're very technical in the beginning of the week. It's very nurturing. Okay, that was really good. Let's change this. Let's move this here. Let's do that. But then on Friday, my guys know, but more importantly, my athletes know it's time to put on your acting hat yeah. to really challenge some of the notions that we we did throughout the week and see if they can do it under duress. And I think that I think if they know that, if they feel that, then, then it changes things because they know that I just need to get through today. I just need to get through this brief moment. And that's another feather in their cap that they could use as a tool because you never know when they're going to be up against a boss who right. it's their guts. Yeah. You know, they could have a coworker. They can be in just a, an absolute a-hole to them and being able to deal with things beyond our control is a, a very valuable life skill dude it is the life skill because i think the only there are very few truths uh or absolutes one of them is that you're gonna have to deal with people in situations that you didn't want to or sign up for uh so that that skill uh is an essential one uh we've got our own version of fun fun friday we call yes. it coach nadolna's lightning round how do you feel about this you ready there you go remember up i like this scoot in here sir he's ready get him all right. Number one, where does your loyalty lie in terms of uh, Texas football? <laughs> University of. There it is. All right. Um, number two, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I love Australia. I love Australia and, and New Zealand. I, I think at some point in time, I wish it was a lot closer, but I love – I love that untouched nature. I love the fact that they've got all climates. The people over there are just, it's funny to me. I always say it's like being in Europe and without the people hating you because you're an American. They're just so friendly. Um, it's just a great culture, but I absolutely love that, that entire Eastern Australia all the way down into New Zealand. What is one habit or something you do every single day that you believe uh, – Contributes to your success. Well, I have a vampire gene. I I don't sleep a lot. I am I am up at three thirty before before the world's even moving, and uh, it's very calm for me. Um, the dogs are still asleep. My son's still asleep, and and the amount of work that I can get done between three thirty and five thirty is is probably the equivalent of what I, I mean, I do all of my research in the morning. Um, I'll put in some, uh, I'll put in some headphones. I'll, I'll go for a run. I mean, there's just, I have a, a, a kind of a, a to-do list of things that I do at that hour. But um, 
that sets the tone for me for a lot of things. Earn my sunrise. It sets my brain chemistry. Uh, my first session, you know, I'm not sitting there drinking coffee, trying to warm up. I mean, the guys come in there like, how are you so alive? And I go, because I've been up for two hours <laughs> and it's just going and going and going. So that aspect has really helped me, um, has served me very well for, for the better part of my life. Have you, have you always been like that? Or, and also what time do you go to bed if you wake up at three thirty? I go to bed. Normally I get done with my last, I, I try to start my day and end my day reading. So normally I'm in bed about 10 30, 11 ish. I'm be asleep by 11 30. I've never really needed a lot of sleep. Um, I don't know why I, even as a young kid, I've never really slept much. Yeah. So. Um, just for the listening audience, um, that, that physiological truth is true for less than 1% of the population. So I, I don't, it's true. There, there are outliers. Uh, I don't recommend the four hour of sleep model, but I love it. Um, do as I say, don't do as I did. Fair enough. Favorite book and favorite movie unrelated to the field. Oh, uh, my favorite book right now is fearless. Uh, story about Adam Brown. It is an amazing, amazing story. Um, of a guy in regardless of whether you're into military um, it's about truly grit and perseverance this uh, this guy grew up um, addicted to drugs um, a beautiful story about his wife who through the grace of God stuck with him through thick and thin through all of his ups and downs going through prison um, and then he eventually finds his calling so he's even on and off drugs as a seal. Um, he goes through a lot of these unbelievable adversities of um, getting stabbed in the face. And he finally gets his appointment to go to, to seal sniper school. And he has this accident and he blows up his face and his hand. And so instead of, instead of bowing out of that, he teaches himself how to shoot left-handed and passes seal sniper school. And so it's this amazing. And then to do all of that and reach the pinnacle of getting pulled onto to team six. And so to watch again, not it, it's really not a military book. It's really just grit and perseverance and somebody never giving up, having a firm family foundation, having a beautiful family that never quit on you, never gave up on you. His mom and dad were there you know, pulling him out of jail, keeping him, trying to get him set, you know, even when he failed to pick him back up, never quitting on him. It's just an unbelievable story. I think they're actually, I think they just sold the rights to it. And I think it, it, it might end up being a movie really, really soon. Hmm. So, but Fearless by um, Adam Brown. Okay. A movie is interesting. And, and I find that interesting because I literally try to find benefit in everything of, of how I associate with my athletes. So, I mean, I, there's a, a laundry list of favorite movies from, you know, like The Last Samurai. I love that movie. I love Braveheart. I love, um, I'm a big stickler for brotherhood uh, of, of that kind of thing, like Rudy, you know, guys uh, struggling together, persevering, uh, working together, accomplishing things like that. So, um, but in, in anything, I, I try to figure out how it's going to pertain to to somebody being a better person, and hopefully, I can use that to influence some some youngsters. Love it. 
who's one person outside the field of strength and conditioning that has influenced you a lot? Outside of strength. Oh, God. I would say about my wife, but we met that way. So no, <laughs> I would say um, it would be my parents. Uh, it would be my family. They, you know, working class family. Um, it, it's it's that that tried true story of I never appreciated them until until I got out and started to work on my own and realized how many sacrifices. Um, my dad never never graduated. He never went to college. He went to the military. Um, and raised us. And it was one of those situations I realized how many sacrifices, how many things, you know, it's not always about talents and skills, so to speak, of, of, of what you bring to the table from a bank account standpoint. But the things that my dad taught me that just the working class things of how to how to appreciate work ethic, respect, all of those things that it didn't matter how much money you had or didn't have, it, you know, just those life lessons that served me well today. Love it. Last one, um, you are unquestionably a leader in this field. So what advice would you give to a future leader about to embark on a similar journey? Oh, I would say experience as much as you can experience. Uh, get off the beaten path. There are so many people, and it's a hard thing to do. I've learned so much when I walked away from physiology and anatomy and biomechanics, and not to say that that didn't serve me well, um, but a lot of the conversations, and, and I'll use this as a perfect example, when I go to conferences, I learn more in the lobby than I learn in the actual presentations themselves, when I'm talking to other people, when I listen to what they're doing, when I listen to problems they have, when I pose my problems, um, so just getting out, um, and like I said, huge things for me were listen to what the coaches were saying, listen to what the defensive back coach was saying, listen to what the swimming coaches want, listen to go find out what the basketball is, coach is having problems with. Be like, hey, I'd love to run this defense, but my guys can't do this. And then you go, oh, well, crap, I can help with that. I can fix that. And then all of a sudden you can start feeding into your better relationship with your athletes. And then the last piece of the puzzle is, is don't be afraid to question things. That's my, you know, I learned so much because I'm kind of a, I'm a natural rebel at heart. And in, and in my head, I, from the moment I got into the field, I started to question a lot of things when I saw that things didn't match up when I was in college and, and I read up about the studies of how much torque and how much force is created on eccentric training. I remember going to my professor be like, hey, you know, how come we don't do more of this? I figured if we can get the hip flexors to be a little bit stronger, it would pretense the hamstrings. And he was like, ah, no, no, that's not it. And I was like, no, I think it is it. Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 I don't think that's it. And, and I think in any other scenario, I would have been like, oh, okay, you're right. But for me, I was just a natural rebel to say, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna figure this out and I'm going to prove you wrong kind of issue. Hmm. All right. Lightning over. Well done, Raph. Nailed it. Um, I gotta, I'm going to add one lightning round question if you're comfortable with it. What was your first job ever? What was your first job? I worked on a, on a ranch. It was, oh. Uh, if I could find a ranch close here, I would immediately put Raider to work on it. It was the amount of baling hay 
taking care of the horses, um, old school fence post digging. Yeah. You know, that little thing you just jam in the ground and you widen it out. And like nowadays, they just got that little thing and it drills into the ground. But I remember he had acres and acres of land. So it was like every 10 feet, you know, we have to replace all the barbed wire fencing. And it was just, um, I remember one day he came in and he was like, um, I said, oh, you know, I got all my work done, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, okay. And the next day he shows up and this huge giant dump truck comes in and he was like, you have to clear the road of all of the big rocks because it was hurting the horse's feet. Huh. And I was like, I mean, that's like a two mile road from the house to the, to the main road. And he was like, clear those out of there. And so I remember every day just getting this wheelbarrow. And for me being obsessive, I always want to fix things quick. Like, okay, if I have one project, I'm going to get it done and then move on to the next. Well, this was hard for me because every day for the first half of the day, I would pick these big boulders, put them into this wheelbarrow. We had to, I had to take them two, 300 yards and dump them down a ravine in two miles of this. And so I remember just back breaking, finally got it done. I was like, Oh, thank God. And the next day he shows up with this huge dump truck and it dumps like tons of these little stone river stones. And he goes, now we have to spread this out. And I remember just saying there, like, Oh, it just never ends. And I, I tell my son this story because you go through the full human emotion cycle. Uh, okay, I'll do this to this sucks to I hate your guts to I quit yep. to eventually. I remember I told my son one day, I said, how'd you do it all? I go, I pretended I had this metal shovel every time that the shovel dug into those little river zones, it sounded like coins to me. Huh. And so I literally go, this is just money in my bank. Yeah. And I literally would just throw them in the wheelbarrow and take them down. And, and I said, I'd start on the far end two miles away so I can every day make my job easier and easier and easier and easier. There you go. And I said, you know, it just, you, you don't learn those lessons without that hard intense labor and that was that was my first job all the way through high school i love that man and i'm gonna i'm gonna pull it all together hopefully we um we just added um an advisor to the good athlete project her name is lisa feldman barrett she's absolutely amazing she's got a book out called how emotions are made and uh i'll you know come to think i'll send you her ted talk if if you have even passing interest but essentially um it comes She's like, one of the things she says, like, everything we experience uh, is interpreted through the senses and is interpreted through this, through our body, right? Like, we don't have thought. We don't have high-level deliberation without this. Like, every part of our brain evolved through the movement of, of this. I'm pointing to my, my yeah. body right now. Um, and, I, and I just totally agree with that because there's something – it doesn't always have to be picking up and moving rocks, but we learn so much about ourselves through movement, through putting ourselves through physical stressors. I say, not to make this about me, but like I, you know, I went through doubles a number of times. I played in high school, I played in college, I played after college. I went through a lot of doubles. At the back end of, of every two week session, I'm, I feel very lucky to have, have had the, the wherewithal to be like, you know, I probably just made it through something that most human beings are not willing to put themselves through. Especially because I actually 
freaking tried. You know, I, I liked it. I was into it. I tried. Um, and there's something uh, I, I wish more people were able to experience that. And I think that maybe that's where why why people like the three of us get into this world is it, we're passionate about it. Yes, but but some part of us wants to give it to people, right? Like oh. We want to give other people this experience. And I, I think that's um, and I'll say this: we're super we're super happy not only to have you on today, but for the work that you're doing, man. It's inspiring hey. stuff. I appreciate that. You guys are doing fantastic. I love what you guys are doing over there as well. This episode brought to you by Hand Armor Chalk, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting. They are also the official sponsor of the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association, a partner organization overseen by the Good Athlete Project. We would not support a product we didn't believe in. Check them out at Hand Armor Chalk on Twitter and Instagram.